0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, we're grateful that you've brought us together on this Lord's Day, and thank you for, for continuing to draw us a deeper, Lord, into the knowledge of what you have done for us in your Son. And I, I pray, Lord, that during... Um, our time together this morning, that you'll open our eyes and our hearts to perceive and understand what it is you'd have to teach us, and that, Lord, you would raise our affections in the process, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I want to fiddle a little bit more today. I'm, I'm throwing a lot against the wall, all right, so I want to do a little bit more in Psalm 102 and Psalm 103, not a ton, but some in Psalm 102, Psalm 103. And and then I want to spend the remainder of our time, whatever we have left, in Isaiah chapter 12, if possible. Um, and, and the continuity between all these various texts is praise. So it, it holds together on some level, but um, I've spent a lot of time in Isaiah 12 this week, and I thought, ah, let's do it on Sunday too. <laughs> so if you remember, for those of you who were with us last week, um, made made a kind of soft claim that Psalm 102 and Psalm 103 are meant to be read together. And you begin to see, I think internally to Psalm 102 and Psalm 103, some shared themes and even some shared language. Um, and if you remember last week when we talked about Psalm 102, we saw it in terms of a certain kind of relate relationship between, um, and if I can remember the way in which I phrased it, um, our movement um, and instability. Think about Psalm 102, verse three, for my days pass away like smoke and my burn, my bones burn like a furnace and how the instability of our own creaturely existence in Psalm 102 is played over against the stability of God. Um, And that the stability of God is that which leads toward the praise of the psalmist. So my days are passing away like smoke, Psalm 102, verse 3. Psalm 102, verse 11, my days are like an evening shadow, I wither away like grass. It's interesting, isn't it, that the, the shadow metaphor is used... In the Psalms, so long ago, and it's still a metaphor that we use today, um, with life and life's ebbing flow, right? The shadows are starting to get a little bit long in life. We know what that means. So when you have our, our days like smoke, or our days are like an evening shadow, that's paired against verse 12, where you have, and didn't kind of try to make Hebrew scholars out of all of you, but I do want you to be very tuned in, when you're reading the Psalms to the disjunctive uh, word B U T, but. but. Um, it's a very important word in the Psalms, and there's actually a technical Hebrew grammatical feature to indicate that. Uh, it's called the Vav disjunctive For if you need a cocktail conversation piece tonight. <laughs> you know, a little bon mot to drop. Um, My days are like an evening shadow, I wither away like grass. And here's the contrast of, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. So that this picture of Israel's God is a picture of God enthroned, um, sitting, stable, uh, not, not inactive, but operating in accord with his kingly status. I think that's what this language of being enthroned is meant to indicate. And if you notice, his enthronement here is modified as that which is forever. So my days come and go like smoke or like evening shadows. No, no worries. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You sit in your kingly existence on the throne forever. This is a claim about God's freedom and God's sovereignty. The way in which God oversees and rules creation and redemption toward His own end. If you remember, uh, back in Genesis chapter 1, we see that God, when He created the seventh day, He ceased from His labors. And then it says, and uh, and it calls that seventh day morning, but it has no term there for evening. All the other days are morning and evening, morning and evening. But the seventh day is just morning. Morning. Indicating the significance of the fact that God operates from the seventh day of creation, overseeing all things towards their end. So when you see Psalm 102, what you have here is praise that's born from distress. We're going to pair these two here, Psalm 102 and Psalm 103. Praise emerges from the situation of the psalmist's distress. And then when we move to Psalm 103... We see praise emerging from thanksgiving. And this, I think, is where some of these psalms and the way in which we classify psalms in the Old Testament can be helpful. So you have these various genre of psalms, like a lament psalm. Um, I think Psalm 102 might properly feature as a lament psalm. So that what, what begins is a, is, a, is a confession of some sort of, for lack of a better term, complaint. A problem has arisen in my existence that's caused some sort of um, uh, instability and disorientation between me and, and God and the community. So something's not quite right. And if you know something about the Psalms, and I think many of you have felt this when you read it, there's a kind of gray area that exists between living and dying in the Psalms, such that people who are still breathing and animated in their existence, in other words, they're not dead, they're not going to get buried anytime soon, but they can be living in a kind of walking death. And this is this is the language from which the psalmist will often speak. My life has gone down to the pit. I'm going down to the grave. I've been in Sheol. And you're like, how can you be in Sheol? And and I just saw you in the coffee shop yesterday drinking coffee. That doesn't seem to work. But that's the way in which the psalmist operates. To be outside or to be in some sort of fractured relationship with the Lord or with humanity is to be in in a kind of living death. So you have these lament psalms where the psalmist will lament this, and then will move after that Bob disjunctive, the but language into, but now I praise your name. I see that you're enthroned, as we see in Psalm 102. I see that you're enthroned forever. That's a lament psalm. We also have thanksgiving psalms, and I think Psalm 103 properly fits into this category. Over here, brother, into this category of thanksgiving psalm. And the way in which I best think of a Thanksgiving psalm is someone was in the deep end of the pool in their distress, flailing. And a buoy was thrown to them. They were rescued from the deep end of the pool. And now they're standing outside of the pool, still dripping wet. And they want to praise God for the fact that they've been, that they were redeemed, that they were saved, that they were delivered from their distress. And I think that's how Psalm 103 relates in some way to Psalm 102. You move from, thanksg- from praise that emerges from distress into Psalm 103 where you have praise emerging from thanksgiving. Um, the psalmist is still dripping from Psalm 102, but he's praising um, the Lord from the, in this moment of thanksgiving. And yet you'll see some of the themes overlap. And I'll, I'll get to it in a second, but let, let's just look at Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. And these, by the way, are phrases that we often use that really demand some thought. Blessing the Lord with all of our souls. So here you have um, the psalmist, who is listed as David here, having an internal conversation with himself. I don't know a lot about the world of therapy or counseling. I I, I know something of it, but not a lot. So I'm going to be careful what I say here. But I think I've heard someone, um, and if I'm wrong on this, I'm sorry. But I think I've heard someone say to me that most Christian counselors in the city of a place like Birmingham are going to be offering some form, or at least as a part of their counseling process, some form of, of cognitive behavioral therapy. And what I think they mean by that is not just giving people be, uh, tools for behavior modification, you remember the famous Bob Newhart skit YouTube this one if you haven't seen it in a while where the woman comes in to he's a psychiatrist and she comes into the office and and um, he says well I, I charge and I, I only charge um, uh, uh, for five minutes and this is all all you, you have to youtube this. you only get five minutes with me." Uh, I doubt that we 'll use all that time but the but the time is yours um so go ahead and go ahead and tell me what it is that your trouble is and so she he has this sort of attractive young woman across the, his desk and she says, Well my trouble is um i'm basically i'm claustrophobic i i can't get into any close space." without being completely paralyzed by fear. I get into an elevator, and I panic, and I'm completely fearful of being closed in. And, and he said, I, is that it? Is there anything else you want to say? And she said, no, that, that's it. He said, well, we, well, here's what I have for you. Stop it. <laughs> um, and she, she says, well, I'm, I've, tried this. I've tried that. No, no, he said, Let me th- let's not, we're not going to get deep on this, just stop it. Um, And he says, well, our time's up. Is there anything else that you want to talk about? (laughs) It's it's a great New Heart skit. Um, That's what you might call just pure behavior modification. But the, the cognitive stuff, I think, is helping people begin to learn to talk to themselves in different ways. And it's interesting, I think, that that's such a common feature of today's counseling practices. And we see that kind of thing all over the Psalms. But that it's not a it's not a new feature of what it means to live life before the Lord, and to, and what it means in the complications of that kind of living, where we need to go. And what you see here in Psalm one hundred three is the psalmist talking to himself. This is David. It's cognitive behavioral therapy. I'm not quite maybe it's more than that. I'm sure. Bless the Lord, who oh soul, do you hear that? It's it's he's giving an imperative to himself. Do this. Bless Him. And everything that makes me who I am, all those component features of my existence, needs to lead into blessing His holy name, knowing that His name is the revelation of His own saving self. And then he gets deeper. I love this, because you go from a kind of general call to blessing. Bless the Lord, O my soul, everything that's within me, bless His holy name. And now it's going to get a little bit more narrowly focused. Look at verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and don't forget His benefits. Okay, and again, we prayed this today. So I, I do love so many features of our shared liturgy together. And one of them is the prayer of thanksgiving that we do together in morning prayer. We bless Thee for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life. Right? That's, that's this. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Don't forget all of His benefits. His creation, preservation, blessings of all, this, of, all of our lives. Uh, but look at the verse 3. And this is, I think, where our liturgy goes. But above all, for thine inestimable love in the redemption of the world through our Lord Jesus Christ. We prayed that together. And it's, what the, it's the same pattern of the psalmist. Don't forget all of his benefits. And verse 3, don't forget that he's forgiven all of your iniquities. That he's healed your diseases. And what he means here, I think, by diseases are, in particular, uh, and there is an, an interrelationship in the Old Testament between um, our souls and our bodies, as there is for, for, for humanity. He moves from iniquities to diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies you with, with good, and he, uh, so that your, new, your youth is renewed like the eagles. It's the kind of Isaiahic phrase he's using here. So He forgives all of your iniquities. He heals all of your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit, from the grave, from that realm of living death, is what He's talking about here, from what I was experiencing in Psalm 102. And He crowns me instead with steadfast love and mercy. I mean, think about think about the significance of what the forgiveness of our iniquities looks like here positively. We know about the removal of guilt. And by the way, that's that's... That's the metaphor that the Bible uses in the Old Testament to talk about forgiveness. Nasa avon is the term, lifting off of sin. But I mean, sin is understood in the Old Testament as a burden to be borne. It weighs on us, and it weighs on the community in such a way that there's an aggregate presence of sin that builds up like a like a like a deep, thick residue. That every year on Yom Kippur, they would go into the temple and do those ritual acts of atonement, in effect, like spiritual Clorox. It's a very, I'm sorry for the bad metaphor, but that's what it is. Spiritual Clorox to clean the temple and the community one more time so that we can be in a proper order of our worship to God. And then day one after Yom Kippur, you see the residue start to build again. The dust starts to grow again. So this sin that weighs on us is a burden that has to be borne. And forgiveness in the Bible is described as that which is lifted off of us. That's the beauty, I think, of that whole second goat... On uh, Yom Kippur, that they p- place their hands on this goat and then send that goat out into the desert to meet Azazel there, whoever whoever that is. Um, but the goat goes out there to remove the power and the presence of sin. So he that we know that to be a, a significant feature of the forgiveness of our sins. But think about the positive aspect of it. We know about the removal part of it. That we might think of that as the negative features of the forgiveness of our sins. The removal of its guilt and its consequences. But what does God replace that with? He replaces it with His loving, loyal kindness. His loyalty and His mercy toward those that He's called His own. So think about this. For the forgiveness of sins is not just God saying, alright, now I've got, now, now things are okay. Um, it's a positive movement toward humanity to say, not only have I removed guilt, the guilt of your sin and its presence and power, I've replaced it with my own loyalty and determination to be a God who loves you and loves you at radical consequences to my own self. That's the nature here of forgiveness that draws the psalmist into praise from distress that leads to thanksgiving that leads to this moment of praise. So look at verse six. I mean this this is a psalm that really does not need to be taught. It just needs to be read, right? The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Just read Exodus. We know the story of Israel. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is, and here's a wonderful dyad in the Old Testament to describe our God. He's merciful and gracious. Those of you who have read Exodus thirty-four are starting to sound hear terms that sound very familiar. This is God's own exposition of His name. Remember our last class that we did? This is God's exposition of His name in Exodus 34, 6, and 7 that show up here in Psalm 103. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. These are tropes that show up again and again in the Bible. He doesn't always chide. Aren't these great character traits? He doesn't always chide. He will not keep His anger forever. Um, Verse 10, maybe one of the best verses in the Bible. He does not deal with us according to our sins. He doesn't repay us in accord with our iniquities. For as, and this is good stuff, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. And you don't really have to be really good at sort of the geometric spatial things to recognize that if you go east, you'll never run into the west. Right? so verse 13 as a father shows compassion to his children so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him and I think all of us in here who have had that experience as parents know what it's like I think, and again the analogies break down because we're talking about God but this at least helps us have some sense of what God's fatherly character is toward us all of us know what it's like to be super frustrated with our kids and to have a moment where the, the ignition has been lit. <laughs> only to recognize, as you think more about what led to those events, a certain kind of compassion that, you know what, they're struggling too. They're having a hard time too. There's a lot that's going on in their world as well. And look at what the Lord says here at verse 14. Or David tells us about the Lord's knowledge. Why does he show compassion? Because verse 14 He knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. And now all of a sudden, if you're reading Psalm 102 and Psalm 103 in conjunction with one another, you're thinking, this seems like a familiar phrase as well, or at least a familiar theme. Our days are like smoke. We're like those shadows that are cast long on the ground. We're like grass that comes and goes. And now here we have the psalmist telling us that God is compassionate toward us like a father because he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So much going on in this verse right here. And we need to look at the next few as well. But again, the psalmist in both Psalm 102 and 103, and think about this, in 102, it's in his distress that he emphasizes the transience of his life. And in Psalm 103, it's in his praise and thanksgiving that he recognizes what? The transience of His life. He, re- he remembers our frame. I mean, think about the language here. And all this stuff matters. He remembers. Now you hear the word remembering. And if you've sat in these classes long enough, you've heard it already. But that's not just a, that, that's not an unconsequential term that the psalmist is just using to get you to a larger idea. The term matters. When God remembers, that's, that's God's covenantal faithfulness to His people. Remember Genesis chapter is it 9, and God remembered Noah out there floating on the, in the ark on the sea. God remembered Abraham. God remembers, and you see this language of remembering. This is covenantal language. This is the language of the initiation of God's grace toward his people. It's the language of God moving toward his people before his people have any ability, will, or desire to move toward him. He remembers our frame. And then you have to love this phrase right here. He knows that we're just dust. You know what I think the psalmist is playing with here? He's playing with Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, right? I mean, in effect, he's saying the Lord remembers that day. Way back then where he was like, oh, okay. And now you're animated. It's like he, he was there when he gathered the materials from the earth and brought humanity into existence. He knows from whence you came. Um, I, I do think it's meaningful in our funeral liturgies that we say things like "dust to ashes, to ashes, and dust to dust." It's a it's a Psalm one hundred three fourteen kind of moment to remind humanity um, the dead don't need to be reminded of that in that moment. They're they're very aware, I believe. It's the the living that need to be reminded in this moment that we're from dust and we return to dust, and the and that God. Think about the language here. He knows that about us. He's conscious of our frame. He knows that we're, we're frail. He knows that we're in our own accord, to use Paul's language in Romans chapter 8, we're weak um, because we're just dust. And look at, look at how he goes on to explain, expand on this. And as for man, his days are like grass. That's again Psalm 102. He flourishes like a flower, of the field, and the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And here's a hard phrase to read. And its place knows it no more. That's that's not fun, especially for those of us who are who are given, which I think is all of us in certain moments of our lives, to a certain kind of self-congratulation. <laughs> you know, um, we're impressed with our achievements or whatever they are. And here you have the psalmist saying, uh, let me give you just a little taste of reality about what it really means for you to be your best self now. All right. So here's your best self now. Your best self now is you come up like a flower and you bloom and you give off a nice fragrance. And by the end of Mother's Day, those flowers don't nearly look as good as they did the morning when they were handed over. Because flowers come and flowers go. Grass turns green, grass turns brown. And then the last phrase here is the hard one, I think, and the place doesn't remember it anymore. Um, I I think about this in my morbid moments. When I'm turning on 59, when you go from 59 and merge onto I-20, or wherever that is, and you can see the cemetery near the airport, right there on that turn. And there it is. It just happened yesterday. There's the big cemetery and you see all those grave markers and you go, I wonder how many people that are living now know that person all right. um, or could talk meaningfully about that person. Now my, um, we have a, a family plot in Holly Hill, South Carolina um, which is small, little country town um, in South Carolina. This cemetery, to me, it's like in some sense, the platonic form of southern seminaries. You know, big oak oaks and the moss is hanging off the trees and it's not well taken care of anymore because it's kind of a dead city. Its best days are in the past. And you walk into this cemetery in Holly Hill, South Carolina and you can just kind of feel it. Who knows these people? All all these people represent a bygone day and the place knows it no more. I mean, I think what this leads us... I mean, in other words, you can go two ways <laughs> with this kind of knowledge. Uh, one option, and it's a legitimate option, just read any 20th century literature you want to get your hands on. Um, Kafka, Metamorphosis, I mean, whatever you want to read. There, there are other directions to go with this knowledge, and that one of them is bona fide distress and despair. I think despair, a kind of nihilism, is is a fair outcome, at least again, in a secular mode of thinking, to recognizing that we're here, we flourish, and then we go. We go. I mean, you can step back and, and, and look at that and say, then what's the point of it all? I mean, why, why do we do any of this? Why, why, why give myself to it? I think we see this a lot in our cultural moment right now where people step back and go, what's the fuss with all of this? Um, Anthony Bourdain it comes to mind as someone who thought and talked about these kinds of things as a man at the top of his game when it came to his particular field, and yet just felt the absolute emptiness of it all. So I, th- I do think despair is a legitimate option that one might have with this. Or you can go the psalmist route. And the psalmist route is to let that reality move you toward praise. And thanksgiving. Why? Because I know that even though I am transient and moving, and I'm like a flower that's here and then it's gone, the steadfast love of the Lord toward me is not like that. Those are the great juxtapositions that you have here in Psalm 102 and Psalm 103. We are moving all the time. But the stability of the Lord and in His steadfast love and loyalty and mercy toward His people, that will last, in the psalmist language, forever. And you get to participate in that love forever and ever. And that's what animates us and I think fuels us and gives us the, the strength, I guess, to not move toward a legitimate despair that might come from the outcome of our, of our natural existence. Because look at verse 17. This is the verse. You had it. It was verse 12 in Psalm 102. And now it's verse 17 here. But, there's your word again. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. Isn't that beautiful? Um, We're like grass here and gone. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. I actually would, would make, I think, an argument that Psalm 103 verse 17 is an intimation of immortality in the Old Testament. What's what's attached to this is is some notion that gets worked out more fully in time. But it's a notion that already where the seed is planted, that to be in in covenant relationship with God demands an existence that's everlasting. Because we come and go in this creaturely existence of ours... But to enjoy and to live into the steadfast love of the Lord that lasts forever and ever on those who fear Him, this is this is a claim here on some level that we might not know how all this works out. We, we do in time, resur- the, namely the resurrection of the dead. But we will participate in the in the love of the Lord forever and forever on those who on those who fear Him. So that's Psalm one hundred two and Psalm one hundred three, uh, and of course, how does it end? It ends with with, um, uh, I don't know, a kind of praise service that would make a lot of us uncomfortable. Verse 20, 21, and 22. Hey, angels, how about you join in on this? Bless the Lord. You mighty ones who do His word. Uh, Verse 21, bless the Lord all of His hosts, all of His ministers who do His will. So here you have David, the human agent, looking at the throne room of God and saying, Hey, all of you up there too, join us in our earthly praise. Verse 22, bless the Lord all His works and all the places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. In effect, what the psalmist says here at the end is everything that is visible or invisible should join into the praise and the blessing of the Lord. Oh, I don't really have time for Isaiah 12, but would you humor me and just look at it with me for like two seconds? And if you have to start walking out, that's fine. Well, let's look at Isaiah 12, because it relates to Psalm 103 and 102. And let me just read it to you. I'll make three comments and then you can go. This Psalm should sound, I mean, this, uh, it is a Psalm in Isaiah, should sound really familiar. Uh, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord and call upon His name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord because he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. What you have here in Isaiah chapter 12, which is situated in such an interesting place in the book of Isaiah, it's about to get dark again in chapter 13. Where you have what scholars would call the oracles against the nations. So they are hard words, and there have been some hard words before this as well. God coming in in Isaiah chapter six and Isaiah chapter ten as the great tree feller cutting down His people because of their arrogance. So it's in the middle of all of these dark shades that we see the promise of God. And notice something about this because I, I, and I will talk more about this some point again in, in this class in, in a class like this. Because we sing this all the time, and I think we need to give a little bit more shape and substance to what it is, at least I do, what it is that I'm singing. But notice that all of this is oriented toward the future. And this is very psalm-like. And it's psalm-like because Isaiah the prophet and the psalms want you to know that your current existence and reality is not the sum total of that reality. And we tend to operate that way. I do too. I tend to operate as if what's going on now is everything, and Isaiah wants you to know what's going on now is not everything. That there will be a in that day. Isaiah pointing you to the future. You will, get, you will say in that day. And what's the language that we're going to say in this future day? I give thanks to you, O Lord. The Eucharist, Thanksgiving. Why? You were angry with me. Rightly so. This is the community speaking collectively in a singular voice. You are angry with me, and rightly so, but you turned your anger away that you might comfort me. Another way of reading this is, you will turn your anger away from me, and you will comfort me. Now, Does, does the handles of Messiah start to ring in your mind right here? Because we all know Isaiah chapter 40, right? Um, uh, Nachamu, ami. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to the heart of Jerusalem, right? Can you hear? Is it a tenor that comes in to do that? Comfort ye, right? That, that that language of comfort that you have in Isaiah chapter 40 is promised here in Isaiah chapter 12. And here you have the prophet talking about an end that day. You will say that he will comfort you. And in Isaiah 40, they experienced that day. He has comforted us. He, we, we, we paid for our sins. And now he's showing us his, the day of his salvation. So what's that day going to look like? It's going to look like a day of thanksgiving and praise. Why? Because God is my salvation. Um, The church fathers, the the Greek translation of this, translated this because God is my Savior. And they ran with this in ways, I was reading this morning um, some some of the fathers on this. They they ran with this in ways I thought are so helpful. This is where they would move immediately to think in, in Jesus Christ terminology. Because God, You are my Savior. Uh, God's salvation has been demonstrated in His Son, who is the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. I will trust. I will not be afraid. Because the Lord God, He's my strength, He's my song, He's my salvation. That's a great triad. My strength, my song, my salvation. And if you look at these at verses 2 and 3, you'll see salvation mentioned three times. The deliverance of the Lord. God is my salvation. At the end of verse 2, He's become my salvation. Verse 3, beautiful metaphor. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And this metaphor of water here, tapping into that necessary source for life. You cannot live without water. And here we see that salvation is described as the water that's drawn. And of course, you read throughout the tradition on Isaiah chapter 12, and no one, at least up until Calvin and Luther, maybe after things get a little goofy, but you're not going to read in the Christian tradition of this text here, anyone who goes into this text and doesn't link it to Jesus in John chapter 7 who stands up in the middle of the people and says, if you're thirsty, right, on that great on the great festival day where they would release the water, and Jesus stood up and said, if you're really thirsty, come to me and drink. Draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say to that day, what, what do you do? Give thanks to the Lord. Call out upon His name. Recognizing that our activity of praise, think about this. I'm going to give more thought to this myself. But our activity of praise is itself a missional activity. The fact that we praise the Lord and that our existence is an existence of praise, that itself is an exaltation to the nations about what God has done for us. So what do we do? We sing, we shout, we sing for joy. And why can we sing for joy? Because God promises, think about this last phrase, God promises not to be far away. He's not a God who's far away. He's a God who's near and in our midst. So Lord, I pray in this season of Thanksgiving that you will let our hearts be filled with gratitude that you, O Lord, have not contented yourself to remain at a safe distance from humanity even with all the messiness of this world and and the messiness of our lives. But you, even as the Holy One of Israel, has given yourself to be in our midst, to be with us, to be near us. And in your being near us in Jesus, we can sing and praise and shout because you are our salvation. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.